Hi everyone, welcome back to another of the Raw Show with Michael McDonald and I have a very special guest. We have Pat Armstead joining me today. Pat, thanks for joining me on the show. Oh, pleasure. I've been looking forward to it. Thank you. So, initially as a registered nurse, Pat is now a multi-award winning speaker who's toured internationally all across the world. Over the last 17 years, Pat has amassed hundreds of stories as a result of getting present to her own life. Today, she shares her signature stories and elements she believes are the key to building emotional intelligence and resilience. So, Pat, I thought we would we start with your background, if that's all right. So, would you be able to share with me and our listeners where you were born and what it was like for you growing up? Yeah, lovely. I was born in a country town in New South Wales, Australia, a town called Camden. It's where MacArthur Onslow bought the first sheep to Australia. <laughs> right. And while I didn't live on a farm, um, certainly very much lived in and around a, a real rural community. So loved that. Um, loved being able to be part of nature. Um, had a fairly, fairly uneventful childhood. I, uh, when I left school, I wanted to be an artist. And um, my mother said, well, that's lovely, dear. <laughs> Your father frames everything. But I really think you should get a proper job. And so it was that I eventually ended up going nursing. Had no intention of being a nurse. Um, did my nurse aid training to begin with because I wasn't sure if this was the path for me. However, I loved it and went on to do my general nurse training and nurse education and nursed for 16 years, um, all in New South Wales, working mainly in nurse education. And for six years, I managed a um, 79-bed rest home hospital. Right, okay. So, yeah, so, so, it seemed like it all seemed okay up to a, up to a certain point. What, what happened next? Um, the, well, essentially, I got burnt out nursing. Mm. Um, my first relationship had broken up and my partner had left. Um, I had a two-year-old son. Um, and I continued to work for a time, but um, aged care in particular is very high pressure, and after six years, I was done. Um, I had met another man who wanted to travel Australia. He'd come over from New Zealand, and um, I resisted for a time because at that point I was going to be uh, a matron of a Sydney hospital. <laughs> I had right, a big well. vision of where I was going. Um, and he'd come over to go on a working holiday. So um, 12 months thinking and I surrendered and I went off on a, a five-year working holiday around Australia, um, homeschooled my son or we did school of the year and we just um, lived in our own motorhome that we'd built, um, fully self-sustained within that and travelled for five years and we had a, a better lifestyle, I think, and a better income <laughs> um, <laughs> than perhaps before or after in, um, in many aspects anyway. Um, worked for the Make-A-Wish Foundation, 
worked on the set of the television show, The Flying Doctors. I don't know if you know of that over there. Um, I did special effects and um, continuity uh, with that program. Managed a wildlife sanctuary, red or wombat. <laughs> um, so many wonderful things. And, and really in that time, we were never without work. And I learned a new skill set that really serves me well when you fast forward for the last 15, 20 years of my life. Um, I learned about free falling and, you know, trusting the universe. Um, we would phone ahead <laughs> and uh, inquire about work and just, you know, arrive on the day and away we'd go. It was, there was so much ease and grace around that space. So it, it taught me how to, how to be with that. One, one year I lived totally on seafood <laughs> and I never right, well. <laughs> yeah, um, And then when my son reached high school age, it was like, oh, you know, we, we need to get back into the other world again, I think, and um, then go to high school and complete his education. Mm -hmm. So we did. I didn't know what I wanted to do. Then I didn't want to go back to nursing. Um, ended up working in the child care centre for a year. And then as a result of a lot of filming that we'd done while we were on that trip, ended up starting a video production company, editing old film and slides for people, making this is your life kind of presentations. Then started filming school events. And once our skill set had developed, um, started filming for the news and then started making commercials for television. Um, absolutely loved that job. This let me just have full creative expression, um, which I hadn't had really in nursing. Um, not much room for creativity there. <clears throat> um, and... Yeah, so, so this period was actually wonderful. Um, I never dreamed I'd have my own studio. Um, we had a business in a mall and, you know, we started as a home-based business, moved into that and did very well. We won 11 advertising awards. Um, one was the New South Wales um, uh, Media Award, uh, New South Wales Award for Tourism slash media first time ever for um video production in australia to win that award um plus an award from casherelle in paris was a bit proud of that one as well and um did quite well in that business myself and my new partner and then there was a bit of a downturn at the end of the 90s uh, sounds so long ago, doesn't it? <laughs> it does, yeah. <laughs> um, to make a long story short, he'd come from New Zealand and uh, yeah, business was doing really bad. People stopped advertising. So, you know, work was becoming sporadic. And we just chose to um, move to New Zealand for a time and um, spend some time with his family and see what happened. Uh, we owed a lot of money <laughs> uh, at that point, so arrived over there owing 80000 which we repaid in two years. And uh, I think there's a book in that because if we could teach people to save 40000 a year, <laughs> that would be 
a very useful book, I think. Um, yeah, it was. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, it was there that my, my journey with um, joy <laughs> or not um, began. Uh, in the first 18 months that I was there, I had 10 car accidents. None my fault, honest. <laughs> um, nine times someone ran up the back of me at a stop sign and once I was collected in a roundabout, so about every six weeks. Um, I think I was having what some people have referred to it as crash karma. <laughs> um, yeah. Certainly there was something going on. Um, I had cancer. I had lost my first child, a daughter. Um, my family hadn't spoken since 1989. And um, at the height of all this, my second partner left with another woman. And, you know, all those other, other losses and things that occurred, I had coped with all of them. Um, you know, I communicated my way through repaying that debt. And, you know, while people don't like that you owe them money, um, when we could be totally honest, totally vulnerable, keep people informed week by week by week, then you build a pretty extraordinary relationship. Um, and you enable yourself to do what feels really, <laughs> really hard to do, you know. Um, was a bit of a struggle financially, but the, in going to it, I just saw when, when you step up and you own what you've done, um, it's your debt, so, you know, you've got to sort it, um, then the way is paved for something better to come in. Um, so when my partner left, um, I was pretty devastated. I thought we would grow old and crotchety in a rest home together. Uh, I had no idea that anything like that would happen. And um, during this period, I really came to see just how important the words are that we say. One time he said to me when we were parting, he said, no, I don't love you and I never loved you. And, and in that moment, I thought, oh, my God, if that's true, then everything I've ever known is not true. And so that was my disintegration point. Um, I really collapsed. I was quite a mess. Um, for several months, had a good doctor, and she kept saying to me, I'd really like you to go on some medication. Um, it'll help you get through this. And I just kept saying to her, I don't want to be medicated. Help me deal with my grief. I've had a lot of losses, <laughs> and um, I need support to move through this. Anyway, she didn't have the answer, and I went looking for something else, and there was a grieving um, seminar being held for parents of children at the um, Auckland, New Zealand um, Children's Hospital. And I thought, oh, perfect. The person who was presenting was somebody who'd worked with Elizabeth Kubler-Ross and some of your listeners might know of her. She mm -hmm. worked for many years with um, people who were dying. <clears throat> And this doctor had come out to support 
the families who had lost or were losing children to set up their own networks once they left the embrace of Starship, the hospital. So there were 400 parents in the room that night. Um, you can imagine the energy. Um, pretty heavy, <laughs> pretty sad. And um, he pres the doctor presented for two hours. And I, I think that that night was actually uh, pivotal in... in um, in my personal uh, forward movement. The couple that I sat immediately next to, a man and his wife, um, she just sat perfectly still throughout the whole two-hour presentation, really obviously not here. And he, on the other hand, was very distressed. Um, he'd fold his arms and hug himself and rock in the chair a bit and... I could see he was sitting right next to me and I could see his jaw clench and unclench as the presentation's happening and periodically tears would come to his eyes. And I felt his pain like I'd felt no one else's pain ever before, 16 years nursing and never been so overwhelmed by the pain and grief of another. At the end of the um, session, uh, he got up and went outside and I followed him. I'm that kind of girl, you see. <laughs> and, um, I said to him, you're clearly going through some really heavy stuff. I said, would you like to talk? And, and so he did. And he shared the story of their 14-year-old son had died um, as the result of a, an accidental fall inside a cinema. And he said, you know, you, you can see my wife. She's been like that for 12 months. Uh, we've got two other children who are grieving terribly. I'm a man, he said, and I don't know how to, to deal with this. And I've got to try and hold it all together. And we had this amazing conversation and uh, a big hug and parted. And when I went home after that session... Um, there was a, a mess an email from a magician <laughs> in South Australia who was inviting me to bring laughter workshops to New Zealand. And I thought, well, for goodness sake, just look at this. I've just left this room, 400 people in abject anguish. And, and I get home and, and here's this email from a magician about <laughs> 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 laughter yoga. So I rang him and we had this amazing conversation for about half an hour. Uh, he didn't tell me any jokes, but he had me laughing a lot. And it was in the middle of that conversation, you know how sometimes just pause in the conversation and there's just that little quiet moment? Mm -hmm. yeah. In that moment, in that moment, I just got, oh my God, we've got radiology pathology, hematology, but no joyology, I'm going to be a joyologist. <laughs> <laughs> so, and, you know, that began about two weeks of running around a bit like a dog with a bone uh, because I had no idea what to do with that. Um, I went and did the laughter yoga training, came back and I thought, right, Pat, you've got to get, get clever. 
let's see, you know, what else can you do? And so a friend owned a rest home. And so I asked her, could I come and train some of her staff and residents in this laughter yoga phenomena? saying to her, I have no idea where it's going to go or, or what it might do, <laughs> uh, but if you open, um, I'll be able to look after them. Yeah. Um, and so we did that. And for 90 days, um, the residents and, and some of the staff, <coughs> excuse me, um, did a 30-minute workout at 10.30 a.m. every day. At the end of that 90-day period, they were accredited as New Zealand's first um, uh, laughter facility. <clears throat> Went on to achieve a world record in the Guinness Book of Records for laughing continuously for one hour. Um, and we did that in rounders because I didn't want anyone to, um, <laughs> uh, they could be so exhausted um, as, as a re result of that exercise. And... To my amazement, what, what happened over that time was, it was a great rest home, but the residents were passive recipients of care. So, you know, there was, and it was really hard for the staff to lift their energy and keep it lifted, really hard work. And, and what this laughter yoga did was ease some of that. And they started to take back their power and they made fun of their own infirmities amongst each other. So lots of very positive change. I remember one of the, um, uh, there was a couple there, one man, 97, and his wife, 96. And um, they were at the very first workshop. Um, and at the end of the session, the husband, Stan, came forward and he said, thank you very much, Pat. That was that was wonderful and a lot of fun. He said, have you met my wife, Glad? And I said, no, I haven't met anybody personally yet. And he said, well, come and I'll introduce you. So we stepped forward and um, I'm sure you would know men of that era, when they walk with a woman, they take her, by, they take her arm by the elbow and support the arm and uh, escort them, if you like. Uh, I'm guessing you would have seen. <laughs> seen. <laughs> and so he's leading me towards Glad, holding my arm. And as we get a bit closer, he turned to me and he said, Pat, hasn't Glad got beautiful eyes? And I'm thinking, oh, my goodness. <laughs> if, I, if I get to be this age and I've got a fellow and he still thinks I've got beautiful eyes, I'm going to be one happy chap. <laughs> and so, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, and he, I put my arm around Stan and leaned in to say hello to Glad. And as I put my arm around Stan's shoulder, Glad, who actually hadn't spoken for two years, said to me, take your hands off my husband. So <laughs> this lady who had been mute, <laughs> um, you know, everyone thought that she couldn't speak, <laughs> certainly couldn't and didn't like me, <laughs> um, putting my arm around her husband. 
Um, so, uh, so that was kind of the, that was the beginning of joyology. F from that point, when I saw the good that had happened, I knew I wanted to do more than laughter yoga. So from there, for the next 18 months, I did a lot of um, research work. I pooled a lot of the information that I had from all my years nursing um, and started to develop programs um, on stress management um, and managing grief that I could deliver into the health sector because I knew the health sector very well. And by the time I got to 2004, um, I was really seeing if I want to um, generate more income, I'm really going to have to um, be more diverse and deliver into the business sector as well because the health sector typically doesn't um, pay well. <clears throat> and, and so it was that I did. In 2004, I think you would have seen in um, some of the notes I sent you, I, um, I did two things actually. I worked with four Jungian psychotherapists um, and we shared myths, legends, fairy tales, storytelling, symbolism, colour and um, used a lot of artistic processes to support each other and um, share methodologies. And after 12 months, that's when I developed my own Good Grief program, um, which began in that developmental time with them. And I also toured through Russia's orphanages with Patch Adams. And that's probably been um, <laughs> certainly one of the biggest highlights of my life to have that experience. Um, we all, I don't know if you've seen um, any of Patch's tours and um, the work that he does. You know of Patch Adams? I don't know. I don't know. Oh, Okay. Um, Patch is an American doctor who uh. has been dressing as a clown all his life. Um, he's still alive. They made a movie called Patch Adams um, and Robin Williams starred as Patch. <clears throat> all right. So, so for the listeners and even yourself, highly recommend, um, it might even be available as a, a download now, um, but highly recommend um, watching. Um, it's a wonderful insight into humour at the bedside, basically. Hmm. Uh, humour and care. Uh, the whole idea of um, the compassionate clown, not just being a clown and silly, uh, but bringing, melding, melding the two. <clears throat> so on that tour with Patch Adams, there were... 36 of us from around the world, uh, ranging in rage from 16 through to 86, I think. <clears throat> A retired minister was 86. And um, we all left our home countries already dressed in clown persona. I should have shared a photo with you. <laughs> um, and um, we visited, we had a total of 16 days a week in Moscow and a week in St. Petersburg, visiting on average um, several orphanages a day, we visited a few hospitals. 
as well, um, with the whole intention of bringing joy into a very, um, a very poor environment. All of the places that we visited, there were typically um, dirt floors, no toilet paper, no hand towels, no soap, um, no light bulbs. Um, food that, that these children ate in these orphanages, <laughs> not my idea of a um, <laughs> uh, best meal ever. No. And, um, and, you know, working with Patch's direction to some extent, um, we just had this incredible experiences and encounters, um, eye-awakening to, um, number one, see the poverty. Um, here, well, in England, I'm sure, and here in Australia, even in, you know, really, really tough times, there are, there's government support and agencies, you know, where you can get support either short-term or long-term. Um, and for, I think Russia has a little of this now, but uh, when we visited, um, they didn't. So if the um, fa families were very poor, antibiotics were just way beyond anyone's <laughs> budget. <clears throat> um, ambulances were few and far between. Nobody ever waited for an ambulance. They just did all that they could by whatever other means to um, get their children or their family to hospitals. So, so we brought some joy into uh, these children's lives. Um, we had a few clowns who could do tricks, but um, before I went on the tour, I had a conversation with Patch and he said to me, because uh, he's quite famous, he said to me, don't come because of me, Pat. Come because you want to find and spend your clown self. Come because you want to experience the disparity between rich and poor. Come because you'd like to make at least one Russian friend. And we did. Um, we, everyone had bubble machines. So we'd get off the bus and get our bubbles going and every time we only had one musical instrument and she only knew one song that was You Are My Sunshine <clears throat> and off we'd go into these facilities which were all very grey and drab, uh, especially Moscow. Moscow's are very grey, <laughs> very grey, grey, very bleak um, terrain. So uh, I returned from that trip feeling more vital and alive than I've ever felt in my whole life. And there were a couple of experiences that um, contributed to that. Shall I, shall I share one of them? Yeah go, yeah, go for it. Yeah. So we, on about the fourth day, we visited Sajiev Posad, which is the Deaf, Dumb and Blind Institute in Moscow. And we, there were no real plans each time we visited. We just allowed things to happen and walked into this building and uh, a little girl in a blue velvet dress put her hand out to me as I came in the door, took my hand and just led me off 
to a side room, pulled me down onto the floor, and then she came and stood beside me. She was perhaps nine or ten. Uh, I had no idea what was wrong with her at that point. And she started playing uh, and touching my earrings on my left ear. And in that moment, I'm thinking, oh, something, something incredible is going to happen here. Uh, no idea what it was. And so she's just playing with my earrings for a little while. And then she started to hum. And by the tonal quality of her voice, I could tell that she was deaf. Mm. She hummed for a time and then she stopped. And I thought, ah, my turn. So I hummed for a while. And she hummed and I hummed for about 45 minutes <clears throat> before they called me to come and get back on the bus. We had to go. And in that 45 minutes, I didn't have one stray thought. It was just her and I in total communion. And it's the most joyous moment of my life ever. To just be that present to somebody for so long and the only connector was this hum <laughs> that we both did. <clears throat> Um, and there were, you know, other similar encounters. And what I, what I came home with was we were really present to it all. There were, there were really joyous moments and lots of fun moments, but there were also really sad moments. Um, it, all of us could have brought home half a dozen children. Um, <clears throat> and... You know, when I returned, friends said to me, oh, you know, you'll get over it. You know, you're back in the real world now. <laughs> and, you know, I really got there. And, no, <laughs> um, that's the real world. And, you know, ever since that's been, um, I guess, a real guiding principle for me to, you know, be present Um to support other people to be more present to their life, um, to live into their gifts and talents. Um, I'm not a performing clown. I never did master juggling or anything, though I did go to clown school. <laughs> I failed. <laughs> um, but it was more about being able to walk in and sit down and be present to make something happen when there's, like, no plan. And, and that's what we did. And each night there were 36 of us and we'd have a big debrief in the corridor and share some of our experiences of the day and some would be sad and some would be glad. Um, so a huge amount of what I call intimate communion to, to step into these children's lives. Patch has been taking tours for 30 years now. Um, pretty much to these same facilities. So the children wait. They draw. I came home with a, a whole bunch of drawings. The, the children draw during the year and each person they meet, uh, each clown they meet, um, they share some of the art. One of the doctors said to us uh, a big speech when we were leaving one time and he said, each year you come 
and each year they wait. And while they wait, they learn songs. Um, they would sing to us, some of the children, and, and they draw. And so they, they draw and share their vision of their life. And, you know, we look in and we saw stark poverty. But in spite of their circumstances, some of these drawings were just remarkable. It was like, how can they, how can they find such beauty when as a, we're looking in and seeing such, such despair? And I really got the, um, you know, it's our experience, my experience of their lifestyle. <laughs> um, I was experiencing it way more differently to what they were. So, you know, yeah. I couldn't, there's no comparison. I couldn't make that comparison. <clears throat> no. Well, well, I just want to say thanks for, for sharing that part. I mean, it, there, there was a lot that you, you shared there, and I think that there's, there's a few things that I think are worth mentioning again. There's a few things that, that, that I certainly picked up on. And one of the, the first things that, that really struck me was that you, in, in order to, to get to this point, you've had to, to own a lot of the things that you've done. Like you've had to, you've had to take responsibility for the, a lot of the, the actions that you did, the actions that you're doing, and then obviously you, you're probably going to do the same with, with your future actions as well. And I guess a lot of it does come down to the fact that you, you were actually able to, to change your situation to get out the other side of of all the things that you'd gone through, like from, from cancer, losing your daughter and, and all of those sorts of things, you, you said, well, you know, what, what actually caused you to, or, or at least, at least encouraged you to, to take a bit more responsibility on, on your part of things in order to move forwards? What, what sort of kicked that off for you? Um, well, I think it was, I coped with all of those losses. Um, I managed responsibly repaying that debt. Um, and, you know, the, the breaking point was my partner leaving mm -hmm. and um, the words that he said. Um, I, th I thought, you know, he said, no, I don't love you and I've never loved you and we were together 20 years. So I know now that's not the truth. However, at the time, I thought if that's true, then everything I've ever known is not true. And so I disintegrated. But what I can see now is since that point through to now <laughs> has been my reintegration. And I committed, I made two commitments. Number one, and I don't know where this came from, intuitive, soul consciousness, I'm not sure. But I said to myself, whatever comes up in my life now, I'm going to go to it. So there'll be, I don't know that, I don't think I was a particularly a runaway person, <laughs> um, but I was making a commitment big time to face everything and what's been my experience since is, you know, I still um, get challenged by life. Um, things come up and you think, oh, I don't know if I want to do that. Um, or I'm scared, you know. Um, and 
you know, as soon as you get into action and take the forward movement, then that fearful thing is not there. So as you as you get into action and step forward, it's like it fades away. It's like the curtains open. So that's been a commitment in the beginning and then it's become, I guess, an integrated part of how I be in the world. Whatever comes up, I will go to it. And um, I knew I needed support. If I'm going to move forward um, from this point, because uh, my family weren't speaking, then I need help. So um, I looked around my circle of influence um, for a mentor and someone recommended to me Mike Hutchison who was MD of Saatchi and Saatchi Auckland a very genial man and to make a long story short um, I managed to um, secure him as my mentor and the um, I'll share with you the story actually because it's quite significant um, when I finally decided, oh, yes, he sounds wonderful, uh, and then I got an appointment to see him, and then I'm terrified. <laughs> it's like, what am I going to say to this man? In his beautiful office and beautiful building, and, um, you know, I've got a tale of woe and an idea about joyology. <clears throat> and in the mail came a small bottle of Dettol. Do you have Dettol over there? Oh. Um, we do, yes, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, and as soon as I saw it, I just got this idea. So I got the bottle of Dettol, um, a Band-Aid, two cotton buds and a makeup sponge and put them all together in a little cellophane parcel, put it in a little treasure chest. And when I went to meet Mike for the first time, I gifted him this little box and he lifted the lid and lifted the cellophane wrap out and he said, um, what's this, Pat? <laughs> and I said, well, Mike, I'm not here to sponge off you, but I do have the germ of an idea and it has a couple of applications and I don't want it to be a Band-Aid job. Um, I said to him, blah, 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 this is, you know, I've been through this, joyology has happened, would you be my mentor and would you help me source funding to, um, to get going? And he said, yes and yes, first 10 minutes. <laughs> uh, and I had two yeses out of this man. Um, and that was probably the pivotal moment that somebody of his stature could see the possibility in me, even though I was still feeling very wounded um, at that point. Uh, and he, he said to me on more than one occasion, um, as joyology evolved and became something, he said, you know, they told Disney he'd never make any money out by making people laugh. And um, so, of course, we know, <laughs> we know where that ended up, don't we? We do, um, yeah. Yeah, so they were probably my two things um, that, you know, really committing to, to face it all and, and having support. Yeah. Um, that was pivotal. And then for the, for the business growth, I just committed 
I haven't got much budget, especially when I first started. I'm just going to be published every month. I'm good at writing. <laughs> and um, so I have been pretty much nearly every month through to now, the last 17 years. <laughs> um, been published somewhere on TV, on radio, um, in print magazines, and more recently, it's more online stuff, of course. Yeah. Yeah, well, again, again, just um, th th thanks for sharing that again. I mean, do you have, do you have any particular conversations that you that you put yourself through when, you know, when something happens and you mention that you just go towards it? You, you did mention that you had to, to have a certain level of commitment in, in the beginning. Did you have a, a particular conversation with yourself in order to encourage yourself to take the action? Or was it just a case of you saying, well, I'm going to do it and then see what happens what what was that moment like um i th i think look especially you know if we kind of look at you know maybe the first 12 months um those early few months were pretty pretty tough emotionally um you know experiencing a lot of grief sadness um so it was very much um I allowed myself to grieve. I think that's important and it's why I have such a, an attachment now. I think a lot of the depression that we see is unresolved grief. And we've medicalised unhappiness. Um, mm. And we need to support and allow people to do the grieving. Um, because if you do the grieving then you allow it out in whatever way. Tears, there, there are lots of, you can journal, um, lots of ways, a lot of ceremony, ritual, as um, a lot of Indigenous cultures have rituals and ceremony that help with that, but white culture, not so much. So, you know, we have to, I think, develop that. <laughs> Uh, we hardly sit at the table to have a meal as a family, let alone um, have a lifestyle that's steeped in culture and held together by culture. Now, we have Christmas and Easter, <laughs> um, but it's not quite the same as the deeply spiritual traditions that a lot of different cultures have. Aboriginal culture, Maori culture, for example, two that I know well. Um, they're sustained by um, the rigours of those processes. So finding those processes, I think. So I allowed myself to grieve. I allowed myself to cry. Um, I had time off work and the first three or four months. And then as I came back into work and started doing things, um, going to it just really became a mantra. You know, it was just a, a, a thought running in my head all the time. Whatever comes up, I'm going to it. <laughs> so if I was going to a meeting, whatever comes up, I'm going to it. <laughs> um, and, you know, once we, in the beginning, it's just something we say and we probably haven't internalised it. So we might not be particularly good at it. However, once you've been through a few challenging meetings, difficult processes, stepped out where you don't know where something's going to go, uh, into meetings, that kind of thing. Um, as my confidence grew, 
then um, so did the courage. So, you know, being able to step out further and further and further. Um, but it took a while, but by 2004, I had um, begun to be pretty much self-sustaining and 2006 was just rocketed and did very well until recently when I wasn't well. <coughs> well, it, again, it just seems like there's, <coughs> there's so much that, that you, you kind of learn from the experiences that you've had. I mean, everything from like, trying to encourage yourself to take action, and it definitely gives the impression that the more action that you, you took, the more action that you were then able to take as if you'd, you'd almost conditioned yourself to just take the action rather than thinking too much about it or taking up too much time. So it definitely, again, it, it just comes across like, you would do things quite quickly because you didn't spend a lot of time talking about it or talking yourself out of it. Would that be right in saying that? Yeah, and the and the other difficulty in inverted brackets I'm going to pose is the world wasn't really ready for a joyologist. However, <laughs> um, once I got going and I had some content sorted and uh, a bit of a brand happening. Um, it was that very thing that got me some fame because everyone wanted to know what a joyologist, because um, I was the world's first. Um, so that got me a lot of media attention and it also gave me a place to direct my creative person. You know, the, I was doing good. I was being good humoured. I was developing my sense for humour. I was um, building and creating new things. So all of that is a, um, a space where you can invest yourself. Um, and we, we've got to fill our own well. I'm sure you'll appreciate that. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the, I experienced awful loss when he left. Um, but no one else could fill that for me. I had to. And part of that was finding this new expression of me. Who am I if my family aren't talking anymore? Who am I if he's not around anymore? What do I really believe in now? Um, what has all this past served? <laughs> uh, what of it can I bring forward into now? And I've always been committed to doing good <laughs> in the world. Mm -hmm. And yep. this was a, a turning point for me, I think, to claim my space in a way that I hadn't before. I'd had lots of achievements before that. But this was very much, they were often external. This was very much an inner journey. Yeah, for sure. All right, well, we're kind of over 45 minutes, getting close to an hour now. I know we've, we've obviously spoken about a lot. I've made a lot of notes. It might be worth, might be worth setting up a, a second conversation, actually, Pat, because there's, there's still 
there's still loads that I'd like to ask you and talk to you about. So we might have to <laughs> might have to do that at some point in the future. So just before we just before we round things off, um, I thought it might be worth trying to to boil things down in terms of what would you say were the three key benefits of something like joyology and and what what would you say were the the three most important benefits of, of doing those sorts of things are and then we'll, we'll get into the last couple of questions the um i've i've really come to see over the years that i'm able to help others see joy where it appears there's none so to be able to help people remove the filters that colour their worldview and to see what I can see for them. Um, that's been a very big part of this journey and that's in either in private coaching and also in business. The, uh, so many people are in roles that they don't really want to be in but, you know, we've got to live so, you know, it's an income. And being able to help people, uh, I, I have people take their five signature strengths to work with them so that they marry the signature strengths um, to their job description and they're bringing some of their self into their work environment. And every time we invest of ourselves, contribute towards another, uh, and I've only um, learnt this this last 12 months um, with Judith Glasser, where actually the frontal cortex of our brain opens up and just pours oxytocin. So we are just divesting our own body uh, with amazing feel-good healing hormones um, when we're in this space. So being able to do that also is um, so valuable. You know, we, we all the, we all we all care and we all want to be cared about. So to be able to um, I send and have been for 17 years three pieces of what I call glad mail every day. Uh, now, that could be a card or an email. Sometimes it might be a phone call, but mostly it's a letter of some kind that celebrates, congratulates, honours what I see in somebody. So that's over 10,000 pieces of mail that's gone out in the last 17 years. And what's been my experience is people don't get mail. <laughs> Um, and people don't receive um, dialogue that is honouring of them. You know, we have performance reviews and you might get a few ticks. Um, but I've only ever met one business that had a, a practice of catching people doing something right. One <laughs> in all these years. Um, so, you know, to me thinking of and fostering those things gives us a really good place to step into for the sake of humanity because everyone 
is suffering with a level of anxiety as a result of the uncertainty that we live with today. Yeah, I definitely. <clears throat> and and it, it's certainly sort of caught me by surprise when you, you mentioned that there aren't that many companies out there that do actually try to look for the positives. And I know that um, a lot of the people that I've, I've talked to in the past, they, they often say that they might have left their job and, and started a business because of a, a lack of appreciation. Like they were, they're only really getting pulled up on the, the bad things and not really given much praise or appreciation of, well, anything really. And it is sort of, it makes them think, well, it, it becomes harder and harder and harder to keep doing those things. Particularly if, if you're someone that does go a little bit of the extra mile in your job and then it's not noticed you you're going to stop doing it eventually aren't you it's just how we work i'd imagine so yeah i mean it's it's not an easy thing and i think that in order for for that to change as as, as you say we need to, to have this culture of noticing the the positives rather than just focusing on the negatives all the time what do you think yeah you know the i worked with um five of um, Coca-Cola's um, managers back in New Zealand and three of them had been off with adrenal burnout so really bad stress mm -hmm. um, so and they'd been off for a year or something and uh, were only coming back part-time and you know I really that's where it was about 2006 and I really became aware then of the level to which people will invest and themselves for the workplace <laughs> um, but there's a cost so you know being able to balance is like a thing we a word we throw around a bit but being able to there's these days there's not much difference between work and business you know the two meld together and that's going to continue because there will be more and more and more self-employed people, more and more entrepreneurs. And, um, you know, learning, learning how to be self-sustaining, learning um, how to not succumb to the peaks and troughs, but to be more in a state of flow is, is a journey on its own. And um, it, it just comes through, in my opinion, it just comes through practice. Um, you know, to uh, a lot of Buddhist teachings. Uh, I, I remember a Buddhist monk one time um, trying to explain to me how they manage, you know, vastly changed circumstances. He said, for example, he said to me, first I was driving and now I'm walking. So, you know, if we could go like that calmly <laughs> um, rather than be devastated or crippled or um, brought down by life events. Um, so, you know, shifting our view on, on the degree to which events have us and may have us for too long. I, you know, uh, I'm not saying we don't grieve, but I am saying we don't need to suffer. 
I think that's a big distinction. That's a big part of my work to help people do the grieving, um, but to see that they can move past that suffering. That does not need to be an enduring space. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah. It, it seems seems to me at least that um, it seems to echo the kind of fact now I guess whereby a lot of the time the only way of getting past something is to get is, is to go through it you've got to go through, like, if you go around it or under it it's always gonna it's always gonna come back to to keep you stuck to, to a certain extent and um, it's almost like the it's almost like the the actual expression of the, the negative emotion is is how you would you know dis- dispel it or get get through it, or get past it, so you can be more positive again. Uh, just just before we just before we finish, I thought we would leave with maybe two two more questions. Uh, the first one is going to be: if someone wanted to find out a bit more about you, Pat, where, where can they go to find out more? Uh, probably the best protocol in the beginning is my website: www.joyology.co.nz. Um, I still have the New Zealand website, even though I'm in Australia now. Um, that'll be sorted shortly. Um, or they can link up with um, Pat Armitstead on Facebook. All right, excellent. So just before we finish, this is a question that I ask all my guests, and this is where we can we can kind of blow everything <clears throat> out on this one. So it can be funny answers. It can be quite deep answers we've had favorite foods as well pat so you know if there's, there's no rules with this one what would you like the world to know about you that it doesn't already know good question <laughs> <laughs> i think i would like the world to know the full extent of the art that still sits with inside me. I still haven't explored my art. I've done some. But yeah, I'd like the world to see the artist that I can be. Well, that's, that sounds like a, a very good way to end, Pat. Thanks for, for carving out the time to be a guest on the show. And I'm, I'm sure we'll, we'll keep in touch. Lovely. Thank you so much, Michael.